What your thoughts are about the uh, proposal of Senator Robert Kennedy that uh, President Johnson uh, initiate talks with a view to uh, halt the spread of nuclear weapons? It's uh, 20 years too late. It should have been done the day after Trinity. Welcome to Friends at Dusk, a Christopher Nolan filmography podcast. I'm your co-host, Marshall Doig. And I'm your other co-host, Jake Harris. And tonight we are discussing the source material for Oppenheimer. It is finally Oppen time for... <laughs> and with that, everyone turned yeah. off the podcast. I have an open and shut case here. But really, it's, it's a long time coming. We've come a long way from not even knowing how to say the guy's name right and correcting uh, ourselves yeah, halfway through. Fault. Yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> okay. Like, you know, that, I was like, it's German. So yeah, like no, it's in the record, uh, our embarrassment, but we, yeah. we fixed it and now we're here. Mm-hmm. We are. And we're, yeah, it's a, uh, might be a little bit more of a uh, loose episode here. Kind of just shooting from the hip on what we think about the source material since we don't really have a, we don't longer have Tom Schoen to guide us, really. Uh, so maybe he'll put a, a revised edition of the book out in a few years. But that's what um, I'm hoping for. Yeah. yeah, maybe like a. I don't think there's a paperback version of this because the the pa- the physical paper that you would have to have for the, all the photos and stuff would have to be really nice. But yeah, uh, so that might be expensive to print. But uh, yeah, maybe and then maybe he'll get more into into the Oppenheimer of it all. But yeah, so we'll probably just be talking a little bit about the the biography, talking a little bit more about our thoughts on it. So it'll just be a little bit more of a freewheeling thing. But this being the week before Oppenheimer's release, there is a ton of press about it. Uh, some that just actually happened today that we're going to get into. So much, so, so much is happening. See. Let's see here. I can go first well, since I only have the the one thing or you can go. First. Yeah, just one quick thing before we get started. In case anyone does not want to hear about any of the latest news or interviews that some of the cast and crew are giving, uh, if you don't want any more details and be kept in the dark, um, that's totally fair. But we're just going to be talking about everything going forward. So you can wait and listen to this after you've seen the movie if you want. But we just want to play fair with our audience and let you know that um, any details about the actual film itself that maybe a little more have dripped out. We're going to be talking about those here. So now you can go, Jake. Let's go ahead. Let's go forward. Yeah, I got a uh, I came across a TikTok video the other day from Kevin McCarthy, and I had not really seen anything from him before. Uh, but apparently he's a pretty well-known interviewer uh, on the in the TikTok space Instagram. Be, be clear, not Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy. No, 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 no. This guy's a <laughs> actually interesting, he cool a, Kevin McCarthy. Yeah, he <laughs> is a. I don't know if you call him journalist, but like definitely like a video personality. I haven't seen enough of his stuff to know uh, anything. Kevin McCarthy people don't hate me, but. From some of the interviews that I have seen, he kind of takes like a hot ones approach to interviewing where he doesn't just ask the the junket questions and moves on. He actually tries to bring his own experience to the questions and have a conversation with his subjects. 
Um, and so we got to talk to Christopher Nolan to talk about Oppenheimer. And he led into this interview by talking about how his grandmother, who is like 90 something in a nursing home, lived through World War II, lived through all of the fallout from everything that happened uh, with the bomb and everything. So she has firsthand experience of what it was like to live through that time frame. And then once this uh, movie was announced, he immediately uh, said that he went out and bought American Prometheus and started to read it. And his grandma said, okay, I'll read it with you and we can talk about it once a week and have like a book club. And then I can give you my perspective on the real world events. And so as he's telling Nolan this, like you can see his face go from like, oh God, I have to do another junket to, oh, this is actually really, really interesting. Right. Yeah. And so he leads, he has all that lead up just to ask him. So this was my experience of this movie with my grandma. What type of movie going experience did you have with your parents or your grandparents that stuck out to you? And so that led into a really cool answer where he's talking about how his dad really loved Lawrence of Arabia, yes. which is a thing we've talked about so many times here. Um, yes. And so we got to see the, the director's cut in theaters with him. And he also was able to, uh, then the interviewer was, McCarthy was able to talk about how seeing Memento in the theater with his dad was a really good bonding experience for him. And so it was just a really nice, it's what you want out of an interview, especially like, you know, I mean, you're a former journalist. I'm still a yeah. journalist. Like it's what you, it's, it's what you hope every interview you have is. And it's so often like what hardly ever happens really just because you, you can't really build that relationship with people in a short amount of time all the time. Yeah. But that's a lot of fun. And you can find him on TikTok at Kevin McCarthy TV. Um, and he's got a lot of other cool interviews, too. I was going back and reading some of the seeing some of the other ones that he did. I think he asked the same question to everyone that he interviewed for Oppenheimer, but I haven't gotten through all of them yet. But it was pretty cool. Oh, right. Yeah, it, it was definitely very wholesome to see that. And I, I am glad yes, you sent me yeah. that because I'm not on TikTok, but I enjoy the don't want no one spying on your secrets uh, no you. <laughs> <laughs> no i keep in a complete contradiction to what oppenheimer advocated in a completely different context i am all about the secrecy there and privacy <laughs> <laughs> but you know, honestly today uh, yeah. i was just gathering any and all links and in, in, the, in the past week but the biggest piece of news is that today at time of recording they had the oppenheimer London premiere at the Odeon Lester theater mm -hmm. and the cast was there. And then when it came time to watch the movie, by that time SAG AFTRA had voted to strike. And so the cast did not actually go watch the movie. There were apparently publicists following everyone around very closely to let them know if the news came in and Matt Damon talked to variety about how they had a plan and everything. And Talking about solidarity. So by the time the screening was about to happen, Nolan stepped up and announced that, yeah, the cast have left. They're not going to be here because they're showing solidarity for the strike. And that was all really cool. Very much like solidarity here. So it'll be interesting when the, I assume they're going to have a U.S. premiere for Oppenheimer, but none of the cast are going to be there because there's lots of uh, strike rules that the union is asking all its members to take, and that includes no public appearances, interviews, uh, or promotional work, including premieres for their projects. So we, uh, and, and social media posts. So anything you've been seeing from Robert Downey Jr. and any other cast members, you're not going <laughs> to see yeah. anything. It's going to be radio silence unless someone crosses Nothing the digital for, uh, line. 
yeah, nothing for Barbie. Uh, yeah, so, it's going to be really bizarre. Which I don't, I don't know if anyone else has been keeping up with that press tour, but that has been a delight to watch and read all the interviews too. There's a really good GQ interview about uh, with Ryan Gosling, but yeah, no more of that coming up in the yeah. next week or maybe even for the next couple months. Who yeah, knows? we'll see how long this goes, but maybe that's partially to our benefit. So we don't have to on the next one where we're talking about Oppenheimer uh, scramble to contain all the, all the news and everything, but there's plenty enough out there no. already for us to talk about. But uh-huh. off of that Barbenheimer fever, it, it, it keeps rising despite all the other things that are happening. Uh, there was a story I saw on Variety that was reporting that AMC had announced that they had 20,000 double features booked that uh, people had bought tickets for both Oppenheimer and Barbie in the same day. And that was, I think, last week at this point. Uh, so so probably way more. Yeah. yeah. And you know, we're we are among that number, uh, not for AMC theaters, but we're we're seeing both in the same day. It's just the it's a full blown phenomenon at this point. And then I saw a story that Killian Murphy in uh, an interview with a Spanish outlet had encouraged people to go see Barbie as well. And then there's a story from IGN that Chris Nolan said to go see it too. Like he's happy. He said that uh, we have a healthy marketplace. It's great. And Killian Murphy says, I'll be going to see Barbie 100%. So my, it's not quite taking a picture in front of the, the stand up for Barbie, but this I'll accept it. I'll take it. So we've got both Nolan and Killian Murphy encouraging people to go see Barbie as well. So I am content. So the last note about Barbie and talking about the Barbie press tour is actually that Greta Gerwig has added uh, an official Barbie watch list to Letterbox. She created a list which includes Singing in the Rain, which I talked about last time. And apparently that's Greta Gerwig's favorite movie, she told Letterboxd. So that's pretty cool. And uh, I mean, I've, I've been continuing the Singing in the, in the Rain love fest so much uh, is that I just bought the 4K of it and it's on its way at some point soon. So uh, I am I am very smitten and I think I'm I'm vibing with Greta right now and really excited to see some of those films on the list. There's 33 movies, including the wizard of Oz, singing in the rain, an American in Paris. She loves Gene Kelly. What else? 2001 space odyssey rear window. So a little bit of Hitchcock in there. All right, cool. And plenty of other musicals, Grease, Saturday night fever, the Truman show and the Godfather is the last one she added there. So uh, it's a really cool list. We'll link that in the show notes. But just a little bit of the tiny little drop of Hitchcock, a tiny little overlap crossing the streams with some of our Nolan endeavors. Uh, And then continuing right along on the list of everything is that Collider reported that Christopher Nolan said that there are zero CGI shots in Oppenheimer. And that doesn't mean that there aren't any computers weren't involved in this movie at all but it's more the difference of i think in the article they take a moment to point out it's it's, there's visual effects so where you can maybe paint out some some wires holding somebody up and it's done or something but there's no straight up cgi shots everything's practical apparently which 
like, wow, <laughs> how impressive is that with all this stuff that's going to be in here? Pretty incredible. Yeah, I saw some people getting really upset about that statement and be like, oh, he's being a little pretentious person again. And like the difference between CGI and VFX is so stark. Like you can do visual stuff, like you just said, like to kind of fix something in post really and all that. But like trying to do everything in camera and everything practically as much as possible with like on the front end without the aid of computers is what he's talking about. Um, Because like no movie you've ever seen has is without visual effects of some sort, really, especially at this magnitude. But uh, yeah, that's especially I don't know how he's going to do the the whole thing that we've been talking about and that the marketing has been playing up is that, oh, he actually detonated not a bomb, but like he actually did an explosion and that was real. And that's what's in camera. Uh, so I don't know how that's going to play out, but I'm very excited to see how that ended up. Yeah, in- including him saying, and I think this was in the LA Times interview that I'm about to talk about in a second, is that they got everybody in the proper place where they were during the test. So I guess they got everybody in place and then fired off their explosives and filmed that and just got, you know, obviously not on the scale of a plutonium bomb imploding. i I'm sure, but enough to create the the visual of it that you can get, which is what I'm thinking, which is still really incredible to just make it go the right way and do the right things to actually make it look like that's what happened. So I'm very excited to see that. Uh, next up on my bullet pointed list of all this stuff, uh, Universal has been putting a whole bunch of featurettes on YouTube about the behind the scenes and really you know it's it's a lot of press speak and who knows this stuff might end up on the blu-ray and but there's some just good little nuggets and shots here and there of things including the thing i was most excited about a shot of one of the crew members uh putting up movie names on a marquee in los alamos and the los alamos they built for the movie and one of those movies names Double Indemnity, which we covered here very early on. So uh, I'm just, I'm very pleased. that. I mean, the the timeline worked out because I believe Double Indemnity came out in 1944. So very reasonably, very obviously, very plausibly could have been showing there. But but yeah, Double Indemnity, film noir. And then, yeah, a couple days ago, the LA Times put out an interview with Christopher Nolan done by Kenneth Turan, the former head film critic there. And uh, lots of great stuff in there, including some some really great quotes, which I mean, I'll probably pull some of these in during our discussion, possibly. But just as an example, I think one of the things we've been talking about is how might Nolan twist the biopic genre or like change it around or do something with it that you might not have thought of. But Instead, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. what Turan reports is that Nolan envisioned Oppenheimer not as a biography, quote, a formula that you write into can be creatively stifling, unquote, but more like, quote, a thriller, a heist film, a courtroom drama, which tracks all the way through, you know, we've got a heist film, we've got the Inception vibes, you've got them recruiting all these scientists to come to Los Alamos, a courtroom drama with security hearings, of course, and a thriller trying to literally beat the Nazis to building the most destructive bomb 
at that time. Like you could, anyone could imagine. So it's going to be, it's apparently it's going to be more all about perspective and point of view is how we like we're dropped into mm-hmm. the bio of it all. So, which is a, a, a big part of, of the book, um, yes. which we can get into here in a little bit, but I was very fascinated by that aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah. And which is also perspective and point of view being uh, something that Nolan has emphasized. He, he did a few times in the Nolan variations talking about like where you put the camera, but also whose perspective you're seeing the story from. And you're right. We'll, we'll talk about that in a moment, but that was a great read. Uh, there's been quite a few great interviews coming out. You know, there's the wired one from a few weeks ago. And, uh, and then finally, the last thing that I have of all this, absolutely the biggest portion of news we've had on all of this, this whole time <laughs> and the, we've been doing this, uh, is that the New York times did a story on the writing of American Prometheus, like how it came to be written which is also quite an interesting story. Uh, they put that out a few days ago and it took 25 years for the authors, Martin Sherwin and Kai Bird to finish American Prometheus. Martin Sherwin started writing it in 1980. He got the, the commission from the publisher and he started doing interviews and gathering source materials and documents. And he just really didn't do anything with it for 19 years. And then he recruited Kai Bird, who he had met during that time, to help him finish the book. And then they spent four years writing the thing. Going through all that, they finally developed a process and a rapport and banged that thing out. And then they won a Pulitzer Prize for it. So uh, that's a it was just really fascinating and a really cool story about how to write this epic story about this epic life and this man who had such a massive role in history. So like uh, kind of the, the art imitating life in terms of how it, how it came to be on, on that scale. So we'll, we'll yeah. link, I'll link as many of these things as I can in the show notes <laughs> because they're all very interesting and fascinating and, and really cool. So with all of that, Jake, have we had any time to read or watch anything outside of this? No, not particularly. I mean, I I did see Dial of Destiny uh, last week, but I'm not going to mention any of that or spoil any of it since you haven't seen it yet. Thank you, um, thank you. I did see, yeah, I did get to see not uh, any movies or anything like that, but I saw Paramore live last weekend. Uh, the first time I've ever seen them after like 15 years of listening to them. Absolutely fantastic. If they are coming to your city at any point, please go do that. It was amazing Haley williams is beautiful and wonderful and can sing anything and also i know we've got some listeners uh from across the pond they're going to be doing a european tour uh they're opening for taylor swift uh whenever taylor swift does her europe leg of the eras tour so if you can snag tickets for that at all uh that would be a really cool show but had an absolute blast and i got to review it for work um, so I'll try to link that in the show notes if I can, but had so much fun at that show, but yeah, have not had any time to, uh, really watch anything or read anything other than all Oppenheimer all the time. Yeah. So that's what happened to me. I was working very hard to finish reading the book and then made sure I watched the documentary we're watching this week. And then between that and home and work life, there was not much room for too much else. That's all right. Because 
once we uh, pack and ship this episode, I am going to be watching Tenet next week at Alamo Draft House, and then I'm also planning to, at the very least, watch Lady Bird and Little Women before we see Barbie. So I've gotten caught up on Greta Gerwig's directorial stuff. I think there's technically one more, at least one more film she's directed, but it's from the late 2000s in her early career, and it's not really available anywhere. So mm-hmm. I'm not sweating that. <laughs> Very excited for you to see both Lady Bird and Little Women. I love those. So, yeah. yeah. So much. Yeah. A couple good date movies for me and mm-hmm. Haley. So... But that'll be that'll be next time if uh, if we even have time to talk about that after we see Oppenheimer. Yeah, but if we're not just bowled over by emotion. Yeah, well, we'll see <laughs> see how we're feeling. But what are we talking about today, Jake? Today we are talking uh, about American Prometheus: The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer, the biography of said man. And we are also talking about the documentary film, The Day After Trinity, which is uh, pretty much kind of just like a, it's from the 80s. And it's a synopsis of Oppenheimer's life and the, the mostly focusing on the Los Alamos uh, days. But yeah, we're going to get get into that, kind of just do a little, like I said, a little more of a freewheeling first thoughts, impressions type yeah. thing for it. Normally we ask, why did we choose these? And I don't think the answers to that question could be any more self-evident this time. So let's just, like you said, let's get on with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So we can start off with, uh, we can do American Prometheus first. Sure. Um, had never read this before. Nope. Obviously. And I, this thing is a big chungus doorstop <laughs> of a book. Yeah. I feel like I would have um, remembered it if I had read this one. I yeah. really do. Yeah. It's like, 800 pages i think is about the new york times interview thing says it's like 751 something yeah like the physical depending on whatever yeah depending on whatever edition you get i uh saw that it was on sale on the kindle store a while back knowing that i needed to read it for this podcast and so i snagged that bad boy for two bucks and you told me about it also (laughs) and i also figured i don't want to be lugging around a phone book to read it all the time whenever i needed to get some reading done so read the kindle version which is kind of intimidating at first because it says it's like 1100 pages, but really 200 of those are like footnotes and indexes and author's notes. Yes. Um, but I think both of us, cause I saw this in your notes and this was my first thought that I had today was I was just like, this is probably the most readable biography that I've ever read. I think the last time I got that feeling was of just like tearing through a, a biography was, I think his name's Mark Kriegel. Uh, he did a book on Pete Maravich that I read, I think three times in high school. Like just, I would pick it up at random and just read it all the time. So fascinating. Love that book. But yeah, this made like 800 pages feel like it was nothing really. Yeah. Just the fact that we got around to the start of the month this month and I was only say about halfway through. I didn't panic too much because I had a plan to just methodically get it done with all that we had to do. And it really wasn't hard because it was so easy to read. Everything of this was weaved together so well and just like a mind bogglingly crazy story in terms of how full Oppenheimer's life was and all the complexities and all the contradictions 
and Sherwin and Bird just imbue it with this excellent commentary on what happens and conclusions and context. It It's not just a simple reporting of the facts because what you need with something like this is context and they provide that amazingly. And then the conclusions that they serve are pretty great too. And based on the case they lay out for like how they arrived at those for whatever it may be, you know, maybe inferences that are required by gaps in history or the record or clearly like calling bullshit on some, uh, some historical mm-hmm. figures, um, assertions or things they said to other people that are on the record. And quite, quite a few times with Lewis Strauss, um, <laughs> and most especially, but it's almost like I feel like I know Oppenheimer, or at least like I am an acquaintance of him because it was done so well and so thoroughly. So 25 years of work, um, primarily that being research and interviews, so wide ranging and casting the widest net possible. And, and it shows. Absolutely. Yeah. It pays off yeah. so well in such an enormous, epic, monumental way. So. It's a book worthy of a Nolan adaptation. It is like the easiest thing to see why this would have caught Nolan's attention, given the subject matter, this great scientist and theoretical physicist, and the the implications and the uh, the ethical quandaries and the contradictions of this man. Yeah, quite easy to see how Nolan's attention and fascination will be captured by that. So yeah, that's what it is. Uh, (laughs) And (laughs) one of the other things I'll say before we dive into, I suppose, like talking about the the history, history of it is that it just created this sense of suspense through the whole book for this thing. I knew, like I know what was going to happen, but it's kind of building really not even to the Trinity test, but it's really building the whole time to, the security hearings mm-hmm. which yeah. is the absolute climax of the book and it felt very hitchcockian because it was very much a and tongue firmly planted in cheek with using this phrase um you know bomb under the table it y- yeah you know you know where it's <laughs> yeah. going but you're yeah. just there's a sense of dread knowing this is where we're going with all the 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 subtitle of the book is completely apt the triumph and tragedy of oppenheimer because it like perfectly describes the two biggest events of his life with that Trinity test and the use of the bomb and then the security hearings that just utterly humiliated him and tied a bow on any kind of serious public involvement in any say of how nuclear weapons or energy would be used in government policy. Yeah, especially with the the chapter that ends, I forget the name of it, but it's it's leading right up to the hearing, and one of his friends is telling him, "Yes, we we wish you well. We wish we could be there in the room with you, but we know that you're going to be okay." And it, it, this is just you know a bunch of you know, it's a witch hunt, and you're going to be fine. And then the, the final words of that chapter, it was a nice thought, like just the foreshadowing. It's written like a novel, like it gets you to always be pointed toward that moment for it uh and like they dangle little spots of that like throughout the entire book like it like a nolan movie it starts off when he collapses before he realizes he has to go to 
before he's going to be called in for the hearing. And then it finally loops back around to it. But just it's I was also really fascinated by and then especially reading the New York Times piece here about how much research actually went into it. The bit where um, he's like, oh, yeah, I think my there's some gaps in my research. Uh, he's like, oh, well, maybe not. I don't know. Right. And then like just boxes, reams of paper just show up <laughs> and they're like, not nah, your research is pretty good. And like, I mean, you know, this from, you know, having to copy edit stuff and do your due diligence on stories like you could probably spend like an entire day fact checking or making sure, you know, calling people back for something just to make sure that two sentences are accurate in a story. And then you can move on and write another thing. There's so many moments here where I just read an entire paragraph. And my first thought was, wow, I really like the prose and that's really good. And then my next thought was, I wonder how long it took him to get this information <laughs> and how long it took him to like, what archive did he have to go find? Who did he have to talk to? What footage did he have to pull? Like the so much love and care went into making this book and it was almost inspiring in that way even though it's about something that uh, is a really bad like the climax of this book is about a really big blight in our history um, yes, yeah. but um, yeah and to briefly go back to what I said about like we know what's going to happen reading this book I mean it, I mean, it lays it out right in the introduction uh, <laughs> even if you don't know the fact that it's done as well as it is and held my attention. I was totally enraptured the whole way through reading this thing kind of speaks to something we talked about before in terms of when you rewatch a movie and you know, what's coming, you know, with the twist that made everything better. And even though, you know, it's coming like the rewatch value. So in terms of this, like still knowing what the big beats of the story are going to be, and the fact that it can still surprise you and keep your attention like that, I think speaks to the tremendous craft of the book. And also maybe think of what's Nolan going to be able to do with Oppenheimer with the movie. You know, we know what's coming. The history is well established. So I think it'll be a great test for, for the movie itself of like the twist made everything better, knowing what we do coming in. Um, Anything else, any little surprises that the movie itself has in store for us aside, but at least for you and I, that's going to be the case because in the interview he gave to Wired, Nolan said that his feeling was that a lot of people these days don't just, they just know Oppenheimer's name, but they don't know the full history and his full story. So he was saying that um, that's the ideal audience member for his film. The people who know nothing are going to get the wildest ride because it's a wild story. And when I read that, I was like, oh, dang it we're gonna <laughs> it's not gonna be us but but we can apply our twist made everything before it better test and i'm excited about that i mean i still think it's gonna be a, a wild ride while one of my other big thoughts while reading this with the knowledge that it was being turned into a movie was reading important sections in his life and thinking okay well how would he have framed how would nolan have framed this for a movie what might I be seeing when I go see this movie? Right. And one of the the early reviews that I saw on social media mentioned timelines. And so I don't know how he would do that. I have a bit of an idea of how he could maybe pull a Dunkirk and get like three converging things 
to all convene at the same moment. I don't know how that might turn out, but I can see him doing something like that. Cause he did say he didn't want to just do a straight, like he was born here and this was his struggle and this is what happened. And then there was his triumph and then his downfall, like the biopic formula that's so old and stodgy these days. Um, right. Well, I would say I would, the the thing about that that I've I've seen and some of the the press and things and this is this is why we put the spoiler alert in here is that it's very much about like how, how that might he might do that with the timelines is like it's very focused on Oppenheimer's point of view and I think and in one of the timelines is going to be when it's in color those are the parts of the script he wrote in the first person and then the parts that are in black and white he described as more being a you know from a third person point of view kind of over the shoulder look we're looking at Oppenheimer and apparently more from Louis Strauss's point of view so you know that would be very in keeping with the book which is extremely keyed into Oppenheimer's perspective and then like even Ludwig Gorenson was on the red carpet today talking about like I wrote the music from this point of view of like trying to get into Oppenheimer's head and like what would he be hearing or what would the music be like for him so I think that might be how it does it you know maybe we'll switch between those and I think I sort of kind of touched on that when we were talking about our trailer reactions I was talking about actually when we discussed ahead of discussing Batman Begins I saw a thing about people talking about the black and white usage and comparing it to Memento and I I wondered whether black and white would be reserved for a certain section of time in the film kind of like Memento does and and it was a little bit close but it's reserved for different perspectives so that might be kind of a fascinating thing to see like what's the difference between these perspectives in the different uh, <laughs> shades of the, of the film? How are we, uh, how is that going to be presented to us? You know, I, I think by no means we're going to get any kind of like voiceover or anything or, or narration, <laughs> but yeah, that, that was really striking to me. And today as I was collecting my notes, I was like, Oh, this is a thing that's popping up again and again. It's the point of view, the perspective, and we're seeing things from Oppenheimer's view primarily. And, that's one of the big things Nolan said he was trying to do is like key us into to that, including telling the L.A. Times, saying in that interview, uh, Kenneth Turan wrote, uh, Nolan is intent on honoring his subjects, often contradictory impulses, neither fleeing from nor fudging the ruinous difficulties he got himself into in the scientific arena and in personal and political matters as well. And Nolan's quoted as saying, we don't want to judge him. We want to be him. We want to be swept up in his life to see the world through his eyes. In film, we don't often get the opportunity to drill down on these particular moments. Do we know exactly why we do things? Oppenheimer was an extreme form of what we all do. So yeah, the perspective and point of view is going to be massive for the viewing experience of this movie and how we understand it, I think, based on what the, the chat is about right now short of any kind of like timeline manipulation yeah and i was also thinking about you know last week we talked about tenet being uh like the most nolan movie ever uh until maybe this one comes out and i was right. throughout the whole reading of this book i was like oh that's like a bit in inception or that's like a bit in 
a lot of tenant. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's a it is. But then as I was reading the hearing stuff and just the sheer petty levels that Strauss went to at every stage of this hearing, it is nuts. Like y'all, please go read this book because I was just noting the Kindle version. Just like I think I have several notes that's just like what, like WTF? Why would you do this? Like all this. Yeah. Yes. Um, and then my next thought was, this is the prestige. <laughs> like, this is two men who are trying to just be at war with each other. And then one is just uh, way too petty and way too involved in it to see the damage that it's doing. Right. Um, yeah. Louis Strauss is who I was referring yeah. to as the supervillain last week and, and just a little yes. bit of passing. Like he's very evil in this Tord Oppenheimer. So evil. And it's, and it's written in a way that immediately you're like, oh, yeah, this guy like screw this guy yeah and you know you could get into like the subjective versus objective thing of whether or not that keys into oppenheimer like that makes you get on his side or not when really it's like a lot of the stuff that they're using with him in this book is straight transcript quotes oh yeah yeah and even those are just dastardly like (laughs) the, the bit where he has kitty's parents hotel room bus yes. and they were so unnerved by it that they had to go to the hospital or, or when they're coming like, in they had to get checked by customs or, or something. their luggage yeah. yeah 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 like there's just so many, and that's also what i mean about like the the research stuff too this there's so many just tossed off asides that for anything else would have warranted like an entire chapter maybe and there's just so much rich thematic material and historical context here that it gets like two sentences and then you're on to the next thing because it's just so propulsive right yeah i guess while we're on the security hearing maybe working backwards you know i even going through yeah, definitely <laughs> not uh, going in the order of life here but yeah. all that uh, and along with all the the post-war experiences that oppenheimer had trying to trying to do his damnedest in his role as uh, a member of the general advisory committee for the atomic energy commission and just working among Washington insiders and trying to influence government policy, how he was basically shut down at every turn in favor of building up our nuclear arsenal and uh, basically out of fear, just, you know, ramping up the number of weapons we have so we could be unassailable and, have first strike capacity and all of that all the the most hawkish decisions always won out and because of the paranoia and the hysteria which rose to a fever pitch so it ended up with this yeah with this kangaroo court really it was technically not a trial but it was a hearing but it was so patently like yeah. absurdly obscenely unfair and manipulated like, by lewis strauss. strauss treated it like a, he treated it like a trial like, yeah but the most yeah, yeah like the, the most sham thing you could imagine yeah where oppenheimer's defense team essentially was not allowed to look at anything under the guise of oh this is all actually classified so you can't look at it just absolutely awful and just a total travesty of anything yeah and it just makes you like it made me so angry like reading all that and yeah like louis strauss yeah he did get some comeuppance for that later on when he was trying to get confirmed as secretary of commerce under eisenhower but you know that's a whole nother part of things 
And one more thing on like the pettiness of it all. It ended up after all of this that the Atomic Energy Commission voted to rescind Oppenheimer's security clearance just one day before it was going to expire anyway. So this whole thing was just driven fully by spite and the hatred that Louis Strauss had um, derived from a slight that he took from Oppenheimer a few years earlier. He um, Oppenheimer um, obliquely denigrated him in some testimony about some kind of like sharing fissile material, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he didn't you know, call Strauss out by name, but it was pretty clear who he was talking about and just absolutely just burned him. And so Strauss held on that grudge and made it his mission to totally ruin Oppenheimer. And Oppenheimer was pretty much oblivious to this more or less in, in terms of the, the coordinated effort to, to do that. So, um, and so that's another thing we can touch on with Oppenheimer at some point, but uh, like that's um, kind of the, I think just our, our discussion there, just the, how, how deep you can go on something with this and, how how deeply the emotions can be stirred within you from reading this book and oh man wild so where should we journey next on our freewheeling tour through all of our notes perhaps we could say something maybe about oppenheimer's arrogance and some of the, the consequences he had to deal with do you have anything on that uh, yeah, I really liked Nolan's quote where he, I think it was the LA Times interview, where he was like, he's very much just like uh, an intellectual who's so smart, but that makes the dumbest decisions sometimes. Yeah, and he, I really... He makes the kind of stupid mistakes only really smart people can do. Yeah, brilliant, yeah. Brilliant description, yes. And there were so many times where I was just like, oh, why'd you, why'd you say that? Why did you do that? Why would you have... Why did you poison an apple to try to kill a school rifle? Why did you, I don't know. Why, why would you have gone to this dude's house in Paris when you know that he's probably being watched and that he's a communist? And when people are watching you thinking that you're a communist. Yeah. Um, or why didn't you just, why didn't you just resign? Like Einstein told you to, or even like Robbie told him, Rabbi, Robbie. I think it's Rabbi. Uh, Rabbi. Yeah. Yeah. Or even just come right out and like get ahead of everything and say like, yes, I had know these people. I consorted with them a while ago. I never joined the part the communist party and here's everything that happened to me, blah, 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 blah. And just get out ahead and put something in the paper before they can do anything to you. And he decided not to do that. And just, I don't know. It was a, like a, a naivete about a lot of stuff that ended up yeah. getting him in trouble. But then that's also like combined with, you know, a lot of paranoia, especially towards the end of his life and towards the end of his career where he's checking every hotel picture and hotel phone for bugs, the listening kind, not the bed bug kind. Uh, <laughs> and just the, the, the way, especially now once he figured out that uh, stuff wasn't going to go his way with the, the H bomb, after they developed the atomic bomb and just how irritable he got and how careless he got with people around him, even though that's not who he really was most of the time, if you talk to other people about it. And so just a walking 
contradiction who also was a very smart man who also just made some some dumb mistakes that proved to be his downfall basically yeah and it, i think uh sherman and bird sum it up really well when they talk about in context of him trying to talk to truman about i think the openness and the candor that they they talk that he was an advocate for just sharing yeah, yeah. all the information to get it out there and then we can have international control of atomic energy and i think it was one of the first times this happened in the post-war that he just like totally went to pieces he lost his nerve and normally he could be very charming and persuasive and uh whatever he wanted to be but they write that time and again under pressure he would say things that he would regret profoundly and that would do him serious harm so it happened there it happened when he was talking to some army security during the war trying to be clear and open about some information he was sharing security wise uh, which led to the chevalier affair uh he messed that up pretty bad uh, and, and a few other times so again it very aptly described by Nolan, just a smart guy who made some really stupid decisions. Let's see, what else about Oppenheimer the man? A man full of contradictions, I'd say. Not least of which is this man who led the creation of the atomic bomb, but then almost immediately turned around and was very much an advocate for not making any more of them. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I suppose... That's, I mean, that's going to be one of the pillars of the film, really. I think, I think, I suppose we could start with one of the, another quote from the American Prometheus, where they describe Oppenheimer as an enigma and put a bunch of contrasts on him. You know, a theoretical physicist who displayed the charismatic qualities of a great leader, an esthete who cultivated ambiguities. He was, in fact, an immensely human figure as talented as he was complex at once brilliant and naive, a passionate advocate for social justice and a tireless government advisor whose commitment to harnessing a runaway nuclear arms race earned him powerful bureaucratic enemies. And then at another point in the book, it discusses in his, um, in his 30s, he read the Bhagavad Gita, and that was, I think, one of the guiding forces of his life and philosophy, I suppose. And the book quotes a historian, James Hejaya, as proposing that the Gita provided an answer to this psychological dilemma, celebrate work, duty, and discipline, and worry little as to the consequences. Oppenheimer was acutely attuned to the consequences of his actions, but like Arjuna, uh, like a character, a figure in the Bhagavad Gita, he was also driven to do his duty. So duty and ambition overrode his doubts, though doubt remained in the form of an ever-present awareness of human fallibility. So, wow. You know, like, there's there's a, talking about moments from the book that you just, like, really make you think and, and wonder that, like, I think that just, like, kind of compacts a lot of that contradiction right there, or not really an excuse or an explanation, but you can kind of get a little bit closer to the sense of how Oppenheimer was able to do these things while at once 
justify building the bomb and also justify never using it or never building things up again. Yeah. And another thing that I kept thinking of while reading this too, was have you ever read the autobiography of Malcolm X? No, I have not. Okay. So the, there's been some stuff that's called into question about what's real in that one and what Alex Haley might've made up uh, after some other stuff. But the whole crux of that book is basically just, you have a man who was taught one thing and then learned another thing. And then maybe he learned that that thing that he just taught has flaws and then just keeps going on and on down the rabbit hole until he finally arrives at his own opinion about everything. And so his, his life, he constantly changed. He was changing religions. He was changing factions within that religion, changing what he thought about race, changing what he thought about how best to stop racism and everything. And so just like in every stage in his life, he had a different perspective on something that was informed by previous experiences that he had in his life. And I kept thinking about that with Oppenheimer's journey from no, I don't want to be a part of this project. I don't want to build this bomb too. Okay, well, if we don't do it, someone else is going to do it. And then that's going to ensure destruction of the entire world. Maybe at least if we do it, we know that it's in our hands. And then maybe we can share what we know so that we can make sure that nothing happens with it. Right. And then that is led to, okay, well, now we created it. The bomb went off. I don't think that we should have done both Hiroshima and Nagasaki, maybe we should have done one, but there was, you know, as the book lays out, like Japan was pretty much on the verge of surrendering anyway, when we dropped those bombs. Right. And then his perspective shifts and goes into, okay, well, if you're going to make me do this and you're going to make me put on, go put on this committee to build a hydrogen bomb, an even bigger thing that we just built, then I don't want to do that. But I think we should shift our focus to if we have to have this energy move into like missiles and other stuff that we can actually target. So that there's going to be less collateral damage. So like the constant dance between destruction and wanting to preserve life. And then the regret about what he did about it is really fascinating. And it was really interesting to see how he kept shifting his points of view on stuff. And like, I don't know, some people might call that like a, you know, you're flip-flopping for those of us uh, listening old enough to remember the yeah. four presidential elections. Oh, yeah. yeah. But for me, I feel like that's, and this is just me personally in my own life too, I feel like that's a strength of character being able to, you know, hold two ideas at once and figure out which one's right or, you know, hold two contradictory ideas. and Right. Well, it's a very uh, scientific yeah. notion too. And yeah, he yeah. He's a brilliant scientist. So he was just adapting his his life was the Honestly scientific positions. method. Yeah. Yeah. Like when with, with the nuclear policy of the country, he was, he tried to do his best to advocate for the, the least damaging, the safest thing for the world. And then when that, when the, the government policy inevitably blew past that, he tried to adjust his stance to keep it the least damaging thing possible, really. And eventually that, that voice eventually was silenced because the even even dissent was way too radical for for the McCarthyites and mm-hmm. and conservatives of the time. But yeah. talking about all this really puts me in mind of something that's been in my head since I read Nolan's Wired interview. And the news hook for it was tying talking about the atomic bomb to 
emerging artificial intelligence, especially within the past year that we've seen. And so they had no one talking about that. Yeah. And something that he talked about over and over was responsibility with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And those th- that really grabbed me because some of the things he was saying about AI were, if we endorse the view that AI is all powerful, we are endorsing the view that it can alleviate people of responsibility for their actions militarily, socioeconomically, whatever. The biggest danger of AI is that we attribute these godlike characteristics to it and therefore let ourselves off the hook. And he said instead that he thinks AI can be useful and a powerful tool. Then he, he says, like, I really am optimistic about that, but we have to view it as a tool. The person who wields it still has to maintain responsibility for wielding that tool. If we accord AI the status of a human being the way at some point legally we did with corporations, then yes, we're going to have huge problems. And then finally, but I personally, and this is just my opinion, I identify the danger as the abdication of responsibility. And so that struck me because then going back through some of the highlights I took from American Prometheus, there are a few times where Oppenheimer specifically or um, the authors are talking about responsibility. So at one point they wrote, um, Oppenheimer was speaking to a a group or conference post-war and said that the scientists could not escape responsibility for, quote, the grave crisis. And he continued to say many people will, quote, try to wiggle out of this, unquote. They will argue that, quote, this is just another weapon, unquote. And Bird and Sherwin say, scientists knew better than, quote, Oppenheimer again, saying, I think it is for us to accept it as a very grave crisis, to realize that these atomic weapons, which we have started to make, are very terrible, that they involve a change. They are not just a slight modification. And then another time where they talk about responsibility is where they're quoting Oppenheimer again. Uh, I can't remember. I believe this was at the point of after his security hearing or else in a letter to someone. I, anyway, it was at that, at that point. And uh, he said, there's no meaningful responsibility without power. It may be only power over what you do yourself, but increased knowledge, increased wealth, leisure are all increasing the domain in which responsibility is conceivable. And then finally, another really great quote to or um another great passage that's kind of i think really encapsulates how oppenheimer viewed his involvement in the creation of the bomb is by quoting i'm not sure who they're quoting because i didn't note that unfortunately silly me but the quote was indifference to the sufferings one causes is the terrible and permanent form of cruelty unquote and then Burden Sherwin wrote, far from being indifferent, Robert was acutely aware of the suffering he had caused others in his life, and yet he would not allow himself to succumb to guilt. He would accept responsibility. He had never tried to deny his responsibility, but since the security hearing, he nevertheless no longer seemed to have the capacity or motivation to fight against the cruelty of indifference. In that sense, Rabbi had been right. Quote, they achieved their goal, they killed him. So no guilt from Oppenheimer. But there's responsibility. He tried to shoulder the responsibility, that burden of being the leader of this project to create a nuclear weapon. 
So we try to take the responsibility of that by advocating for responsible policies surrounding it, advocating for non-proliferation, for candor, for openness, so that the bomb could truly achieve the aim that they thought it might before they used it on anything. Because they they thought that this could be something that would just end war forever with how terrible a weapon it was. So at the very least, advocating for policies that would ensure that like these weapons could have actually ended war, or at the very least could ensure that atomic weapons are never used again. So responsibility is a key theme here because yeah, that fine line between guilt and responsibility. I, I don't he didn't regret leading the project to build the bomb. And maybe we'll talk more about the why once we've seen the movie and, and next week. But I think that's that's the fine line here. And it's a it's a brilliant through line, I think, that the wired interview introduced to comparing it to AI today and how there are so many figures and inventors that refuse to take responsibility. They throw their hands up and they're like, oh, I, I don't have any. I, it's too big. No, I can't control anything. What, it's, what do you want from me? So the fact that Oppenheimer actually tried to do something, I think, speaks massively to the person he was. Uh, it doesn't resolve necessarily all the contradictions and enigmas <laughs> surrounding him, but I think it does speak to the empathetic and ethical part of his character that was repeatedly brought up by people in the book time and again. Yeah. And speaking of responsibility for stuff, I think that can be a good segue into talking about uh, some of the women characters uh, in Oppenheimer's life and in this book. So he was, Married to Kitty Oppenheimer, but he was also engaged to uh, Jean Tatlock, who was a psychologist, and she also found a very, yeah, very, very big, big influence on him and his political leanings and everything. And elsewhere, um, he still saw her, still met with her, and carried on an affair with her for a little bit after he was married. He also carried on another affair with, um, uh, what's her Ruth, name? Ruth, Ruth Tolman. Ruth Tolman. Yeah, after he was married, uh, so he was a uh, he was a bit of a ladies' man. But uh, there is some Twitter hashtag outrage, as there always is with stuff when movies come out about how Florence Pugh is twenty seven, playing the love interest of Killian Murphy, who is forty seven, which is double the age gap of Oppenheimer and tatlock in real life yeah um but that was the thing that people were choosing to get mad about about this movie not that it you know might depict a bomb exploding or you know destruction and warfare and mayhem no they're mad about a the age gap between a very real historical couple who definitely lived uh they can't change that fact uh and also like age gaps happen in relationships, especially in that time period that they were living in, but right. I digress. Anyway, Tatlock, she went through a lot in her life, had a lot of depressive episodes, fought, uh, according to the book, what their speculation is, is that she was fighting a lot about her sexuality and like didn't accept that she was either gay or bi. And that was what led her to, to have a lot of her issues with herself. And she ended up dying by suicide at 29 years old, I believe. Yes. And 
Oppenheimer felt responsible for that because he said that he felt like he had failed after trying to, you know, help her and coax her out of all of these other depressive episodes. Right. And I mentioned this on the last couple of episodes, like it's a tragic story, very, very sad thing. But the, the thing that I was thinking about in addition to that, in the context of this movie and this podcast and everything was this really is not going to help people who are like, Oh, he doesn't know how to write women because I'm kind of scared to see how that's going to be played out. Even though some of the earlier reviews I've seen have said that Florence Pugh like knocks it out of the park, which I mean, she always does pretty much in everything I've seen, but so you have that. And then one person straight up even refers to Kitty Oppenheimer as a bitch in this book. Yeah. Uh, and another person calls her like the wickedest woman ever. But there's also plenty of people who loved her and said she was the, like, yeah. the best and even better than Robert. And uh, a, a woman almost as full of complications and contradictions yeah. as the man himself. Yeah. Especially once the, the hearing comes up and she's like, got to go back because she was definitely like handing out communist literature like back in the day she was married to a communist who fought in the spanish civil war yeah yeah Yeah. uh and that relationship was a big part of the the hearing as well questioning oppenheimer's allegiances and everything but and i was reading that too and i was like man like he's old nolan is making it hard on himself because like you can't change the past you can't change who these people were and he also didn't choose to make composite characters he made sure that every person pretty much i was looking at the cast list after finishing it i think every single person that had a prominent role is its own person there there is no like combination of two people into one character right right so there he made the choice to not skirt around history at all it just happens that this history was very complicated and very messy and very uh, nuanced in a lot of areas, uh, especially when it came to his relationships with women. But I think that some people who may not have read this book or have known the history behind it, they're going to see this movie and they're going to be like, well, yeah, of course, what'd you expect? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Even though just like terrible, terrible thing that happened to Jean Tatlock and just the, the way that it goes into how her, father found her afterward like oh like so so sad but gonna be interesting to see that because i've i've heard that pew is only in it for maybe 20 minutes which kind of tracks you know how much she actually is written about in the yeah book, but that's it, true that's true but it, it, yeah i mean it she is someone who by all accounts was massive influence on massive yeah I guess so. I suppose a uh, uh, burning out uh, in a in a bright, violent flash instead of just fading away to yeah chop up the the, the aphorism, but yeah, uh, Nolan was talking about it in the L.A. Times interview, talking about the relationships with uh, Tatlock and Kitty, and he said he was worried. Can I even get into that? And he said, it's so complicated, so important, the backbone of who he is, Oppenheimer, but it doesn't fit into any neat dramatic relationship. But things that don't fit can take on idiosyncratic relationships of their own. They can spike out and become important, which I think is with what you just said about the the screen time, I think is kind of a, a good coded reference to what that might be like. And then Kitty as well. 
the example that comes to my mind that illustrates the the yin and yang of Kitty and Robert Oppenheimer as a pair, it's how he was grilled so relentlessly during a security hearing. And you could tell he was getting tired and worn out and just beaten down by it. And then when Kitty was uh, took the stand, she was totally composed and got through it completely fine and was able to fend off all the wiliest lawyer tricks that the prosecutor, Roger Robb, was trying to throw at her. And so she was incredibly strong, is what I'm getting at, uh, and incredibly clever and shrewd. Uh, but also, there were times where she would just, some people said she was an alcoholic, but maybe not necessarily, that she could have just been mixing that with some medications. And uh, mm-hmm. when she, when those things happened, she was in a really bad way, but she was able to keep a firm grip on whenever she needed to. And she was a, a huge driving force behind Oppenheimer and either his ambition or at least uh, guiding his career. Not, you know, not like she guided it and steered him in any which way, but she was a, a pillar and a foundation of that he was able to, and maybe a refuge kind of that he was able to, to stand on and stand by as he went on his journey through his life and the odyssey, especially in the wake of world war two. So I'm, I'm really interested to see, yeah, the portrayal of both those women and uh, I'm hoping Nolan can do it justice and, and hopefully fingers crossed, not get beaten up <laughs> by the usual yeah. criticisms and complaints. Yeah. And, you know, I, you know, take a mulligan on whatever's going to happen with, with Jean Tatlock in, in terms of her ultimate fate. That like, in this case, that's just the history. What, I mean, what are you going to do? Unfortunately. So, uh, and it, that one is so tragic, but, but yeah, I mean, he, I think, I think in the book at one point, it seemed he, they talk about, he was maybe more comfortable with women, someone like that. And he, his charms, especially just drew everyone to him and not even in a relationship sexual way or romantic way like they talked to a lot of his secretaries and how they're just like he was just the best and one of his secretaries his secretary from los alamos i believe the fbi leaned on her multiple times to try to get her to spill information on him and she's like screw you guys like this you're barking up the wrong tree this guy is amazing and uh, he's not he's not a security risk he's not some communist spy or anything so just the effect that he's able to have on people like that and, and especially women uh, is is something that's talked about repeatedly through the book so yeah definitely a key point to to bring up and i envision a wonderful avenue for killian murphy to display his talents to to bring that charm and i'm looking forward to seeing that me too. All right. I think that's all that we've got for that. Cause we, we have a lot more to discuss about the book, but we want to hold some of that until we can compare it with the finished product for the movie next week. So we'll hold off there, but uh, so now, much, so much yeah. stuff. <laughs> now we can get into the, the day after Trinity movie, uh, the documentary. 
Um, and so I will uh, give a little brief synopsis and IMDb stuff here um, and then let you take it away with some thoughts. Uh, this documentary came out in 1981. It was directed by John Else, uh, and it features footage from Hans Bethe, Holm Burson, Hokan Chevalier. Uh, it's in color, 35 millimeter, only 88 minutes long. So if you want to knock it out before you see this, go right ahead. Risk. Yeah, it's on the Criterion channel. Yeah, good times, good times. Uh, it's also weird seeing it in color after reading about because a lot of it is the Los Alamos testing ground. And so just right. yeah. wild seeing that and everything. But anyway, uh, IMDb uh, says scientists and witnesses involved in the creation and testing of the first ever atomic bomb reflect on the Manhattan Project and its fascinating leader, J. Robert Oppenheimer, who upon completion of his wonderful and horrible invention became a powerful spokesperson against the nuclear arms race. Um, and like we just mentioned, we both saw this on the Criterion channel. I don't think we've either one of us have ever seen it before. No, nope. brand new. Um, I also get the sense that a lot of other people are watching it in the lead up because all the latest Letterboxd reviews are like, I'm getting ready for Oppenheimer. I've never seen this before. Yeah. And there's only, it only has about a thousand logged watches on Letterboxd. So very low key, very low profile, but it's there. It's a thing. Yeah. <laughs> probably, probably like a hundred of them are probably all recently from stuff. So yeah. Yep. And then you had some stuff that you wanted to hit on right off the bat for it. So take us away. Yeah, mainly just um, just my primary thoughts. Not, not too much to say about this since it covers a lot of the same ground as the book that we had already read or mostly read by the time we watched this. So yeah, it's kind of a, a side effect of that situation is it felt almost like really thin or things were glossed over but that's only because i was so fat on all the details and the absolutely rich and exhaustive nature of the book itself so it's not i'm not i'm not going to count that against the documentary not one bit because that's just the constraints of the medium it's bumping up against but it certainly does the best with what it does have and that is like the synopsis said lots of interviews with contemporary scientists and colleagues of Oppenheimer who were there at Los Alamos. And the best part for me was just putting faces to all the names I'd been reading about and hearing their voices. And you know, seeing that in a way that the visual media can can bring to you. So yeah, there was that. And, and even recognizing some quotes that were clearly taken from this documentary and were used in the book, uh, hearing those actually spoken out loud. That was pretty cool. And then just generally as a documentary is very well made, very solid. The footage that John else chose and how he put it together. Uh, he definitely had a flair for being able to pick the most impactful moments with what he had, most especially saving the bulk of the Oppenheimer footage that he used until the end including the very last line in the whole thing where Oppenheimer speaks the titular words the day after Trinity, because it shows a um, interview he was doing, I believe with NBC on the 20th anniversary of the atomic bomb being created and used. And they're asking him, I believe the context was that Robert Kennedy had petitioned Lyndon Johnson to 
start non-proliferation talks and ban nuclear testing, I think. And the interviewer was asking for Oppenheimer's opinion on that, about that happening then at that time. And he said, well, I don't really have much to say on it because it should have been done the day after Trinity. And the fact that they use that to end this documentary is just a wicked sucker punch. And kind of like the final blow of the whole third act of this, once they start showing the footage of Hiroshima with just this haunting single screechy violin playing over it, just like puts a cap on that whole entire feeling. So it did that very, very well. And then another really fascinating thing I found that was really not covered really much at all in the American Prometheus was the effect on the locals in New Mexico who saw the test. Uh, I mean, it, it described what happened, the book does, but it doesn't, the documentary really like talks to quite a few people, uh, ranchers and and people living out there near the Trinity site who just saw this flash and were like, whoa. And then a few days later, they saw the effects of the fallout and just had no idea what was going on. And I called it in my letterbox review it was morbidly fascinating because can you just imagine seeing that happen without any notice or warning and seeing the sky flash, everything go brilliant white and light up and not knowing what's going on. I mean, just apocalyptic stuff. And then a few days later, seeing all the hair burned off of one side of a cow and looking perfectly fine on the other side. Just, Oh my God. Yeah. The, I agree. Ending with him after everyone's talked about him and you see photos of him and you hear about everything that he did and then you don't actually hear footage or interviews from him until the very end when he gives that quote is huge sucker punch, like almost a Nolan worthy punch in the gut for you at the end of the thing. But yeah, the just the people talking about what it was like for the the explosion to happen, and then hearing those those quotes about the test, and then seeing keeping that in mind while you see just the photos of Hiroshima and everything is mind boggling and just so thought provoking and sad and moving in every which way. Um, Actually, have I talked about this on the podcast where actually I've been to part of the Hiroshima bombing sites? No, no. Um, so when, when I was in high school, we lived in Japan for a little bit and we played other like military high schools in sports, but we were so spread out over the island that it took a really long time to drive there sometimes. And there is a naval or no, excuse me, there's a Marine base uh, that's a little bit further away from um, where the Hiroshima site is. And so on the way, and that's like a 12 hour bus ride from where I lived. And so oh, man. they, they packed, you know, a bunch of high schoolers in on our way to a cross country meet and took a little stop off to go to, cause they have a museum that's dedicated to it. Like you can't go into the actual bigger parts of it because of like they're, I think they're still worried about radiation and like there's buildings that have been left untouched 
since that day, just as a reminder of what happened and a reminder of the totality of the, the bomb and the war and everything. Um, but there's like hollowed out churches, buildings, office buildings, homes. You can see where yards are never going to grow again on areas. And the museum there gives you a pretty big explanation of what happened from the Japanese point of view in combination with you know the American point of view with everything. And the, the biggest thing, aside from seeing the wreckage and everything that's still there, that impacted me was there are plated copies of letters that this museum on behalf of the, you know, prime minister or uh, prime minister of Japan has sent to every country that has nukes ever since, uh, I think like the fifties, like, so ever since the cold war, they have been sending letters to any country that has nukes asking them to suspend their nuclear program and to suspend their atomic weapons programs. And they have a wall full of frame, not framed, but like a wall full of plated no responses from like America, Russia, like everyone that's got the nukes. Yeah. And it's just like floor to ceiling. And seeing that just blew me away at 17, probably still would now, but, um, it's not like they take it so i mean how could you not like that it's a it was a weird spot to be in i guess like touring it as an american and knowing that the only reason that i lived there was because i was my dad's in the army you know yeah um, so that was kind of a, a a weird thing to to have to again like hold two things at once type thing but it was just it was very moving and like i've never forgot that and never forgot like okay well yeah we it ended the war but this was the cost basically and like it's crazy to me that like we're we're allies with them now like the you know like a lot's changed since then but right it's, it's just it's crazy like that that's it seems so far away in history but it's actually not really and there's you know that they have like just horrifying photos of people with radiation burns and people who were in the site when it happened and yeah and then just i I thought about all of that as i saw the the final shots of this today and then heard him say like yeah we should have started uh the the campaign against it the day after trinity i was just (laughs) right yeah, I mean, oof, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I have much more to add to that, especially yeah, in the context of the documentary. Um, yeah. Mainly just any other stray notes for things. Because there's there's a whole lot in terms of notes that we've taken, that I've taken at least, that are going to get left on the on the floor of this episode. Right. And we'll just save them for, for next time because they'll still be just as applicable. But I guess the very last thing I'd say about the day after Trinity is that the voiceover they got actor paul freeze to do the voiceover and that is some that is a voice man the, off the top of my head the first thing i think i recognized that yeah, he's, done, he's yeah. uh he's the burgermeister meister burger in the rankin bass that's uh, him yeah okay. um from I knew uh, i had 
Santa Claus is coming to town. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. From the opening moment, I'm like, this sounds familiar, but also what a voice. But and I mean, he did so many other things over the years. Great voice actor. Yeah. But his voiceover in this is uh, very voice of God, very epic. Yeah. Otherwise, I think we'll finish it out with any other loose notes we have. And maybe any predictions or last minute things we want to say. And we will also do letterboxd reviews for the day after Trinity. We will not break that tradition. (laughs) The only thing that I would add is, yeah, I agree with you when you mentioned like reading the book and then watching this kind of makes you think that they glossed over a little bit of the, all the events in the documentary just because you know so much more of the background images and the background uh, knowledge from everything that happened, but overall a good, good way to kind of almost like a close notes of the book before the book was even written. Right. Right. I mean, I think it really instead speaks more to the strength of the book and the benefits of having (laughs) the, the book and how much you're able to actually put into that and the depth of research that's required to do something like that. So it kind of, you know, they uh, they enhance and complement each other. They make a very good pair. So I think they, they went well together this week. Uh, do you have any other stray notes? I might have a few things that I'm just going to scan through here and make sure if, if it's something that needs to be said before the movie comes out, I'll, I'll list it off. I'll try to be quick. But is there anything you have before that? No, I think that pretty much covers it on my end. Cool. Well, I'll... Skippity skip through the remaining parts of my notes. I suppose in the context of the LA Times interview, Nolan mentioned Lawrence of Arabia as sort of like an influence on, or at least an example of biographies. And my heart swelled with pride since, again, yeah, I've been talking about this movie regularly the whole time throughout this podcast. I am vindicated not necessarily vindicated but i've been onto it and if i think maybe if we known about that you know more in advance maybe we would have picked lawrence of arabia for this because a lot of aspects of that story definitely dovetail with oppenheimer's story like a whole lot of it but like oppenheimer's on an even bigger scale because lawrence was as they talk about in lawrence of arabia his campaign was a sideshow of a sideshow but he still became this larger than life character and a, almost a folk hero in the UK. And he was a man of contradictions. He achieved this victory leading the Arabs to defeat the Turks in World War One, and achieved this iconic status. But ultimately, the, that success of victory in battle was sort of undone by everything kind of getting split. Uh, the, at the end of that movie is the Arabs uh, having devolving into infighting and then the British are able to take control of the Middle East anyway, which is, you know, from Lawrence's perspective, he didn't want that to happen. So he achieved a victory, but it kind of turns to ash. And he was, had some like that arrogance about him uh, that Oppenheimer also had kind of an icon getting caught up in his own, (laughs) getting, getting caught up in his own legend more or less. So and then on a technical level of, of the film, there's the absolutely epic scale and the photography as well as the story. And it certainly sounds like that's exactly what's coming down the pipeline with Oppenheimer, the movie. So I was very excited to read about that. 
Um, before we, you know, next week, go see the movie. I just want to put in, I'm very proud of what I said during our second trailer reaction, where I was talking about, I don't think Nolan's going to provide us any answers. He's going to do what he usually does and leave us with the questions about what we think about it. And during the whole press tour of this, that's exactly what everyone's been talking about. And Nolan has been repeating that over and over. He's like, I don't tell people what to think in my movies. Um, it's going to be part of the, the horror aspect of it is like, you're going to be left with all these things to think about, you know, impossible questions, impossible ethical dilemmas. And he told Wired, it felt essential that there be questions at the end that you leave rattling in people's brains and prompting discussion. Uh, and he actually even compared it to the ending of Inception. So we'll see how how that leaves people, because that certainly was an incendiary ending to some people's views. Uh, today on the red carpet, Robert Downey Jr. said that this is the best film he's ever been in, which, OK, whoa, wow, like, heck yeah, I'd like to see that. <laughs> and then I think the last thing. Oh, next to the last thing is that Ludwig Gordonson's score, it has a watch ticking in it. They they showed a, had another one of their little clips and the featurettes had a little bit of new music that we haven't heard before in there. And there is a yeah, watch ticking nice. in the score. So we've got it. We're nice. batting a thousand so far for this. All right. <laughs> it's It's got all the Nolan things. Uh, so yeah, finally, any final predictions for Oppenheimer? Anything else you want to say? Um, you still think Barbie's going to win the box office? You know, the other any other things? I do think so, just because Barbie is PG thirteen and Oppenheimer's are. I totally agree. That's like even for that sole reason, yeah. But also, I don't know, like the overall summer box office, maybe Mission Impossible, maybe Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles might come back and do something because i don't know to do the like teenage boys want to go see barbie i don't know are they scared of like it's pink so they don't want to go see it who knows but also like i don't know if unless you're like me at 15 you're not gonna be like clamoring to get into oppenheimer underage (laughs) so right i don't know but i i do think the winner of this weekend is probably gonna be barbie but we'll see how it shakes out for the rest of the summer. Maybe I, maybe Oppenheimer will do will be a surprise. Yeah, maybe it'll do what Dunkirk did and outperform the expectations and and win the day. I'm I'm just curious to see how the how the audiences and everything's gonna rate it and see the, the letterboxed battle for ratings, I think will be fun to, to watch and see. Um and see the conclusion of our Barbenheimer summer. Very less, like, I guess, was prediction I'd make is maybe um, just a thought I've had is maybe the, the plot twist here, the real horror of the film is not the atomic explosions, but it's going to be all about the security hearing and how the hysteria and insecurities and jealousy and pettiness could be turned on to you. Or, and, of course, one's own choices can absolutely destroy you. I feel like there's just some misdirection in the marketing, maybe a lot for lack of a better term. Or else they're focusing on specific areas and a lot of it's on the bomb and the build up to that and not the security hearing, even though there are little bits of it in there here and there. And no one's making a secret of that and discussing it. But I think maybe there's going to be another backdoor sucker punch coming in that's not specifically about the bomb 
which I mean, I'm sure there'll be a huge part of it about the existence of these nuclear weapons because Nolan, among other people, has been talking about it. But I feel like there's another aspect of it that that we're not being told about in terms of of that with the the security hearing and and being essentially martyred um, publicly as a scientist. So I'm curious to see if there's if there's anything else to the weight of existential dread that the the movie's gonna present us with so that's my my final my final prediction i'm getting in you know we'll see what happens <laughs> all right i believe it is time for letterboxd oh yes it is all right i'll go first on this one because i got a nice short one which is somehow at the most top of the most popular reviews even <laughs> though it doesn't have the most likes so i guess letterboxd does trending ones sometimes but anyway um i chose this review because it's a thought i have been having repeatedly since reading the book and and seeing historical photographs and the review here is by brian loring at brian loring and he writes matt damon is way too good looking to play general groves which yes (laughs) (laughs) he's much too thin he's not bursting out of that uniform and too good looking and maybe he just has too much you know i I know matt damon can can play a bad guy and a bastard but does he have enough bastardry about him to play general groves we'll see (laughs) so that that's my predominating thought really over everything (laughs) how will how will matt damon do (laughs) not not anyone else but yeah no matt damon my apologies to matt damon Mine is uh, pretty short as well. It's from uh, Bitter WJJ. And this one says, Woman describing witnessing the Trinity test from very much afar. Quote, we saw this great big flash of light. And my sister, she said, what happened was that she got to see the light. And it seemed that it lit up the whole prairie all around us. Interviewer, was there anything odd about your sister asking about the light? Woman, Yes. She was blind. And the that quote, this that whole section where it's just interview after interview of people, like I mentioned before, is just phenomenal, great documentary storytelling, just letting the people talk and speak for themselves. But that one that one stuck with me, and I'm glad that it stuck with someone else too. Yeah, yeah, and definitely with me as well. That was an, another one from the movie that was Oof, big huge just wow <laughs> like right before she said that did i realize like oh wait a minute i feel like yeah oh. so that woman's sister saw the light and we are going to see the light in some form or fashion another next week i am very much certain we're going to see a big flash in the movie will we see the light of the movie well We'll see if uh, it's as good as everyone says it is. The The moment is finally here. Or it's almost here. As of right now, it is a week and... Oh, no, right now, where we're recording, actually. It's a week, so... Yeah, a week yeah. away. It's almost here. The culmination of all of our work. Yeah, we've been we've been waiting for this moment. But in the meantime, all we have from when we post this to when we see the movie is our social media handles. So where can people find us, Jake? 
you can find us on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, Instagram is at friends at dusk pod. We're also on threads over there too. Uh, and then Twitter is at friends at dusk. You can email us at friends at dusk pod at gmail.com. And you can find me on both Instagram and Twitter at Jake Harris four and on letterbox at 808 Jake underscore. And what about you? I am on Instagram at marshall.doig, on Twitter at marshalldoig, and on Letterboxd at mdoig. So please like and subscribe if you're brand new to us. Hey, you're this is your first time listening. Welcome. Glad to have you here. And if uh, you wouldn't mind, leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or anywhere else you can leave a rating. And you can also support us maybe with some you know, help us with some ticket reimbursements if you like, whatever, you know, through our Spotify podcast page. Otherwise, uh, just keep listening. That's what makes us happiest. Uh, and you can find our list of resources and all of those wonderful articles that we talked about earlier at the top of the show in our show notes. And next time, it is going to be our immediate reactions to Oppenheimer. Yes. And, you know, we're going to do that. And then we'll do a hopefully more thought out episode. But we want to strike while the iron's hot more or less and let everyone know uh, what we think I mean, who knows maybe we won't be able to speak maybe we'll be stunned just like Nolan has said some folks are but we'll we'll try we'll try to find some words but in the meantime that will be all for us and we will see you next time on friends at dusk thanks for listening bye